West Virginia Collegiate Institute is the best school for Negroes in the state. It's the only school past the eighth grade anywhere near here. Isosceles, scalene, equilateral, rhombus, trapezoid. Catherine's in the sixth grade. They want to take her early. Tetrahedron, dodecahedron. They're offering a full scholarship. All you have to do is get there. Miss Coleman, why don't you solve the equation on the board? We took up a collection amongst the teachers and such. It's not a lot, but it's enough to help get you settled in. That's more than kind, Miss Solomon. If the product of two terms is zero, then common sense says at least one of the two terms has to be zero to start with. So if you move all the terms over to one side, you can put the quadratics into a form that can be factored, allowing that side of the equation to equal zero. Once you've done that, it's pretty straightforward from there. Well, I don't know what you think when you watch that clip. Maybe you've been around Hope for a while and you're like, well, I, I come to worship, I expect to sing some songs, I expect to read some scripture. If Scott's preaching, I expect a movie clip. But I was told there would be no math. Well, today we're going to get a little bit of math. Uh, that's the most we're going to get, actually. The rest of it's just kind of numbers, but it's important stuff. We're in a message series this month called Matthew Connects the Dots. Matthew was a tax collector. He was good at math. He wanted everything to add up in the end. And Jesus is teaching him some important new math. Our challenge as a congregation this year, we're reading through the whole Holy Bible together. A word to those of you who maybe have not started or, or you're new, you didn't even know this was a challenge. I would just encourage you to jump in today. Don't worry about trying to catch up and uh, what you've missed, that sort of thing. Just jump in today and, and start reading from this point. It's been so fun. I've been getting a lot of emails and people have been stopping me outside of church saying, hey, I was reading this. and I, what, what was Jesus doing there? Like in Matthew chapter 15. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, a Gentile woman comes to Jesus. She needs some help. And I want us to read together how Jesus responds to her. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Why is he talking to her this way? Uh, we see something similar in chapter 16. Peter declares, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. It's just this tremendous declaration of faith. Let's read together how Jesus responds to this. Again, read it out loud with me. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why? I thought Jesus wanted us to tell everybody that he's the Messiah. What's going on here? How do we make sense of this? Later on in chapter 16, he predicts his death. Disciples are really confused by this. Chapter 17, he says, if you have faith as small as a tiny little mustard seed, you can move mountains. I'll go ahead and raise your hand if you've moved mountains. Yeah, so far no one has raised their hands. It's like all of my friends, everybody in my church has completely weak faith, right? Or is there something else Jesus is trying uh, to get us to understand there? Chapter 18, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be humble children. Chapter 19, he says, if a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, he commits adultery. Ooh. 
Uh, later on in that chapter, he says, if you want to be perfect, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Raise your hand if you've done that. <laughs> uh, at the beginning of chapter 20, Jesus is telling a story. He says, one guy goes to work at nine in the morning, another guy goes to work at noon, another guy at three in the afternoon, and another guy at five. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, it is not unfair to pay them all the same amount. I want to work for that boss. I'll be showing up at five. That'd be great. Uh, what is Jesus up to here? Later on in our Bible reading, the disciples are, who gets to sit at Jesus' right? Who gets to sit at Jesus' left in the kingdom? And Jesus is like, okay, listen, you're completely missing the point. If you want to be a leader, you have to become a servant. And then he takes it a step farther. He says, you really need to become a slave to everyone. And the verse I want to keep at the forefront of our minds as we make our way through some of these strange things that Jesus is saying and Jesus is doing is this verse. Matthew 20, verse 26. Read it out loud with me. But among you, it will be different. One more time. But among you, it will be different. Part of what Jesus is getting at in this section of Matthew's gospel, there is a way of life that seems good and right to most people. There's a conventional wisdom in every age, in every generation, in every culture, there's a conventional wisdom that the vast majority of people are in agreement with. This is the way to do things. This is just the way things are. And then Jesus shows up, and Jesus turns conventional wisdom on its head. Jesus says, I'm going to show you a new way, a better way, a different way. And at first glance, I hope for some of you, the first time you're reading through some of this stuff, you're like, ah, I don't really understand what Jesus is doing here. I think Jesus is doing something wrong, not right. But if you hang with Jesus long enough, eventually Jesus will open your eyes and you will see, ah, that's why Jesus is saying what he's saying. That's why Jesus is doing what he's doing. You've got to understand, Jesus is in the transformation business. I know way too many people who are like, I, I'm the same person today that I was five years ago. I'm the same person today that I was the day I graduated from high school. Nothing's changed. And I'm going to be the same person five years from now. That's like fingernails on a chalkboard to Jesus. Uh-uh. If you're serious about following me, things are going to be different tomorrow. We're going to get after this. You're going to change, and you're going to understand, you're going to be grateful that the power of God changed you, that you no longer believe the same things that you used to believe. You no longer treat people the same way you used to treat people. You're going to get to a point in your life where this verse feels like good news. Oh, good, it's not going to be like this forever. I'm not going to be like this forever. Among you, it will be different. And when this verse starts to feel like good news to you, well, following Jesus gets pretty straightforward from there. Uh, this movie, Hidden Figures, we just watched the opening scene. It's set in the 1960s, the middle of the Cold War. America and the Russians and everybody fearing that the other side is going to launch a nuclear attack. Of course, the 1960s is also the middle of the civil rights movement in our country, America, land of the free, where all men are created equal. Sorry, ladies. Sorry, those of you who don't have the right skin color. It's really interesting, this title, Hidden Figures, it's got a dual meaning in this movie. Number one, it's going to shine a light on some brilliant black women who are working for NASA. They're playing instrumental roles in the space race. They're brilliant, they are needed, they are necessary, couldn't have done it without them, in that there's all kinds of obstacles, there's racism that they face day after day after day, and for the most part, history has overlooked them, so they're hidden figures. 
The other meaning of this term hidden figures has to do with the math. How, how do we do all the calculations? How do we do all of the math that's necessary to launch a human being into outer space and then bring them safely back to Earth? Catherine, the little girl in the clip we watched at the beginning of the movie, grows up. She starts working for NASA. Here's a little bit of her experience. Take a look. Are you finished yet? Uh, almost. <clears throat> he said by the end of the day. The end of the day around here was yesterday. I need those done first. He wants those done first. Okay. Get going. I'm sorry about that. Someone's working on it Mr. Harrison? Oh, yeah, I uh, just said, uh, you know. And Stafford's heat shield calcs? It's hard to be sure, sir. Hard to be sure. You know what we're doing here? Trying to put a man into space, sir. That's right. That's right, so you can throw that in the trash. Excuse me? I said you can throw it away. Here. It's not an insult to your work. It's just obsolete. That's how fast things are moving around here. If I said I was sorry, I'd be saying it all day. What I'm asking you to do, what I'm asking everyone in that room, all my geniuses, is to look beyond the numbers, to look around them, through them, for answers to questions we don't even know to ask. Math that doesn't yet exist. In one of the next scenes, it's the next day, Catherine goes to get a cup of coffee and someone has put a little electric coffee pot there and labeled it colored. And Catherine is the only one with eyes to see how messed up that is. I talk about this on occasion around here. One of the challenges we face when we try to learn lessons from the mistakes of history is there's a temptation we all have to say, if I had been alive then, if I had been working with Catherine, I would have done it differently. I would have done the right thing. I would have done the just thing. Jesus actually talks about this. Here's a hint of what we're going to be reading in the next week as we're reading through uh, Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 23, Jesus is having a crucial conversation with the religious leaders of his day. It's actually not accurate to call it a conversation. Jesus, it was one-sided. Jesus is just letting them have it. And part of what Jesus says to them, you say if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. 
like the people in Jesus, they are saying, if we'd been alive in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament prophets are calling us out for our sin, letting us know, here's how far away you've drifted from God, and, and I can tell you've drifted from God because of all the injustice and oppression that you are uh, putting on people, you're saying, if you would have heard, you would have said, Isaiah, you're right. Thank you for telling me of my sin. Uh, Jeremiah, you're right. Thank you for telling me of my sin. And you would have dropped to your knees and you would have cried out, begging God for forgiveness. And Jesus says, I call BS. A BS means Bible study. If you just look <laughs> really closely at the scriptures, you'll see this isn't at all true because Jesus knows these are the same people who are plotting his death right now. In just a couple of chapters, they're going to be shouting, crucify him crucify him. So Jesus is like, you're missing the point when you focus on, oh, if I had lived in the days of my ancestors, I would have whatever. If I had lived when the Constitution was being written in this country, I would have told Thomas Jefferson, what about women? They should have the right to vote from the very beginning. If I'd lived in Germany when Hitler was rising to power, I'd have been on the right side. I would have supported the Jews. I would have protected the Jews. If I'd have been alive in the 60s, I would have marched with MLK. And Jesus is like, nah. That's missing the point. It's missing the point to say, I would have done things differently if I'd been in that generation. The real question is, are you willing to let Jesus challenge you to live differently in this generation? But among you, it will be different, Jesus says to his followers. And what is it that makes the way of Jesus different? Well, in a word, it's grace. Everybody say grace. As we start adding up all of these stories, all these things Jesus is doing, and all these things Jesus is saying as we read through this section of Matthew's gospel, we start adding it all up, we start to see the difference and the power of grace. If you have your Bibles, open them up to uh, Matthew chapter 15. We'll just kind of do a tour of some of these strange things that Jesus says and does. At the beginning of Matthew 15, the religious leaders come to him and they are concerned because they have equated cleanliness with godliness. And so over the centuries, they've developed all of these ceremonies, these traditions around the washing of hands and the washing of utensils that are used during worship, and that's part of godliness. And they're wondering, why don't Jesus and his disciples take part in all of these traditional custom ceremony stuff? And Jesus basically says, because all your, all your ceremonies are missing the point. They're focusing on externals, when the focus needs to be on internals. It needs to be on the heart. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. So if your heart is pure, that's going to transform your external behaviors and attitudes. If your heart is impure, that will also have an impact, a transformational impact on your behavior, your external attitudes. Verse 19, Jesus says, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. This is what defiles you, what, what's going on in your heart. So pay attention to your heart. You're missing it when you only pay attention to externals. Remember, in, in Jesus' day, externals were super important. Everything was built around externals. So if you had the skin disease of leprosy, people could see that externally on, on your skin. You had to live outside the city limits. And if you needed to go into town to get some food, if you needed to go into town to worship, you, if you got close to anybody, you had to call out unclean, 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 so people would scatter away from you. Think about how ridiculous that is. 
Not as ridiculous as saying somebody can't drink from the same coffee pot or drinking fountain or has to sit in the back of the bus. And, and if you really want Jesus to challenge you, don't just think about things that used to be. Ask yourself, who is it in your life today that you view as unclean? Now you're not going to use that language because you're sophisticated. But aren't there people in your life when they show up in the room, you want to leave the room? People in your life when they get close, you want to get far away or you wish they would leave and, and go far away? What does it look like for you? Maybe it's their behavior. Maybe it's their attitude. I don't know what it is about them, but there's something about them externally that you think defiles them, makes them unclean. What would it look like for God to transform your heart around the way you relate to those people? Story continues, Matthew chapter 15. Uh, the next story starts in verse 21. Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon. Now, the word that I highlighted there is the word Gentile. As we are reading through the whole Holy Bible together, part of what we will discover in Jesus' day and, and in uh, many generations before him and after him, Gentiles were considered unclean. Uh, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, holy people, there was a cleanliness about them. Gentiles, the complete opposite. So as we read that what's going on here in, in Matthew 15, we have to understand this is a story about an unclean Gentile woman. She comes to Jesus asking for help. How would you expect Jesus to respond to this request for help? Probably with compassion. You would expect that Jesus would say, take me to your home, take me to your daughter, so that I can heal her. Uh, verse 23, let's read together how Jesus responds. Read it out loud with me. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. That's a little surprising and unexpected. Does Jesus not know what to say? Is he at a loss for words? And how long is he silent? Part of what Jesus is doing here by, by not doing anything is he is creating an awkward silence. And what do people like to do when there's an awkward silence? <laughs> Fill it. Fill the awkward silence. And so the disciples do. Uh, the disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said, she's bothering us with all this begging. And so now Jesus is going to uh, teach a lesson to his disciples about love for all people, right? Well, here's Jesus' response in verse 24. I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. It's like Jesus is saying, because you're not one of us, because you're not part of our group, you look a little different, you talk a little different, you probably worship a little different, we don't have to help you. We don't expect Jesus to treat people like this. Verse 25, but she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. And then we get to the verse we looked at just a little bit earlier. Jesus tells her, it isn't right to take food from children and throw it to the dogs. Put yourself in the place of this woman at this point. You go to Jesus for help, and this is the way Jesus talks to you? This is the way Jesus treats you? It, at this point, I would be so upset, I would be so hurt, I would, just, I would just leave. I don't care if you have the power to help me, Jesus, you don't get to talk to me this way. 
You don't get to treat me this way. I'm out of here. I'll seek help somewhere else. But that's not what this woman does. She doesn't leave. She argues with Jesus. She is insistent. She is persistent. And she demands that Jesus treat her as a human being created in the image of God, and Jesus loves it. So in verse 28, he says, Dear woman, your faith is great, your request is granted, and her daughter was healed instantly. There's Jesus doing what we expect Jesus to do, but why, what took him so long? Why not just do that right away? Why do we go through all of this? Is it a sure aid? Does Jesus... Does she change Jesus' mind? What's going on here? I'm convinced Jesus is trying to help his disciples. He's trying to give them answers to questions they don't even know they should be asking. He's just done this great teaching with the religious leaders on the folly, the foolishness of their conventional wisdom around clean and unclean, Jew and Gentile. And now he is silent. He pauses to see, are my disciples getting it? And clearly they are not. Send her away, Lord. She is bothering us with her begging. So Jesus, the master teacher that he is, parents, you do this sometimes. You start acting the way that you do not want your kids to act because you know if they see you acting that way, they will say, that's not right. That's what Jesus is doing here. He starts, okay, I'll treat this woman according to the wisdom of our religious customs of our day. And maybe when the disciples see me mistreating another human being because the religion says it's okay to, maybe they will, they will learn to believe it really will be different among Christ followers. The story continues. Uh, Jesus does a whole bunch of miracles. Helps blind people see. Helps lame people walk. Heals people of all kinds of diseases. Casts out demons and then the final story in chapter 15 is the story of the miraculous feeding of the 4,000. And maybe you hear that and you're like, ah, oh, Pastor Scott, it's 5,000. No, there is a, a feeding of 5,000, but that's a chapter earlier in chapter 14. Chapter 15 ends with the feeding of the 4,000, which we typically just kind of skip over because it's the same story. Jesus takes a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, feeds a huge crowd of people, and there's a ton left over. So we just focus on the first story, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, because that's more people. But when we forget about the story of the 4,000, Matthew includes both of them, Mark includes both of them, we miss out on some important Jesus math. So the feeding of the 5,000, really quickly, happens in the region of Galilee. It's on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. This is Nazareth, where Jesus was born, is in Galilee. Capernaum, where he has his headquarters, is in Galilee. In the region of Galilee, he feeds 5,000, and there's 12 baskets left. Five is a really important number for the people of Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is the Torah, the law. And everybody knows, in Jesus' day, the way to be made right with God, the way to be righteous, is strict adherence to the requirements of the first five books, the Torah. That's how you're made right with God. So five is an important number for the people of Israel. So is 12. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. So you do the math, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and part of what is trying to be communicated here, this is Jesus' way of saying, if you pay attention to the numbers, 
It all adds up to Jesus is the Messiah the people of Israel have been waiting for. The next chapter, the feeding of the 4,000, happens on the other side of the lake. And you will notice this as you're reading through Matthew's gospel, as you're reading through Mark's gospel, you will notice Jesus and his disciples are constantly getting in a boat and going from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake. This side of the lake, in the region of the Decapolis, it's Gentile territory. It's not part of Israel. Uh, the people of Israel know, we don't go over there, but Jesus does. And we don't go over there because it's unclean. A little bit earlier in Matthew's gospel, we read about Jesus casting out uh, demons from a guy and sending the demons into a herd of pigs. There's no herds of pigs over in Galilee because pigs are unclean. But over here, you've got a whole bunch of pigs. Unclean, unclean, unclean. This side of the lake is unclean clean. And Jesus goes over there and there's a huge crowd of people there. And he feeds them all with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. 4,000. The number four in the Bible often is referencing the things of earth. We have four seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall. Four cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. Uh, four basic elements, earth, wind, fire, water. Four is a number in the Bible connected to the created world, connected to the whole earth. Seven baskets of leftover, not 12, seven. Seven, biblically, is a number we often think of as perfection, but it's bigger than that. Wholeness, completion. So on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus feeds 4,000 with seven baskets left over. You do the math. Not only is Jesus the Messiah that the people of Israel have been waiting for, he's the Savior of the whole world all people on earth. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved but the name of Jesus, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was new math for people in Jesus' day. Remember, in, in Jesus' day, uh, every nation had their own God. And so part of what was happening when nations would go to battle against nation, it's a fight to see which God is better, which God is stronger, which God has more power. And here we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 saying, I got the power. I've got the power to tell the religious leaders they're doing it wrong. I got the power to perform uh, miracles. I have the power to feed huge groups of people. I've got the power. My way is better. Follow me. And so people are like, yeah, we like this guy. We like this supernatural stuff. Let's follow him. And they do. And you turn the page, and Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm going to die. And they're like, we don't like that. You got all this power from God, and what are you going to do with it? You're going to give it away? You're going to let yourself be overpowered? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Jesus is like, yeah, and it gets even better. I want you to do what I'm doing. We know this. We know what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're going to read four verses right now that you have heard before. You're very familiar with them. You know them, but they're easy for us to ignore. So we're just going to read them one right after another. Here's the first one. It's on the screen. Read it with me. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. The next one. Anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Keep going. Many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then one more. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the new mass of Jesus. So followers of Jesus understand, we don't just look out for our own interests. We look out for the interests of others. Followers of Jesus understand the challenge of my lifetime is going to be figuring out what does it look like for me to deny myself? What does it look like for me to take up my cross as I follow after Jesus? Which means for followers of Jesus, we will live every day of our lives with this tension. On one hand, I want Jesus to be wrong. Are you sure, Jesus? Is this really the way? The way of surrender? The way of self-denial? Uh, Jesus will say to his disciples, are you willing to drink from the bitter cup of suffering from which I will drink? Is the way of suffering really the way of Jesus? Isn't there another way? So on one hand, we want Jesus to be wrong. On the other hand, something deep inside us, the reason we're here, is we know Jesus is right. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What does this actually look like in the day-to-day -day living of our lives, practically speaking, in our relationships? What, how, do I, how am I hanging on to my life? How do I let go of it? How do I go the Jesus way? Uh, three examples from the, just this week in my life. The first one's really silly. Uh, it's NFL playoff season. My team is the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, there are four games, playoff games this weekend. One of them takes place when... I'm going to be preaching a sermon and unable to watch it. Guess which game that was? Uh, the Chiefs last night. So we sang a song. Uh, Lindsay's leading us in this new song, You Have All My Attention. <laughs> last night at 5 o'clock, I was like, sorry, Lord. Uh, help me stay attentive. Anyway, uh, the Chiefs were playing the Jaguars last night, and I've been a nervous wreck all week because Trav uh, Trevor Lawrence... Uh, led his team back. They were behind 27 to nothing last week, and they came back to win the third largest comeback in NFL playoff history. And immediately after the win, this stat started showing up everywhere. Trevor Lawrence has never lost a game on Saturday. And I'm thinking, boy, I sure hope the Chiefs don't play the Jaguars on Saturday. <sighs> there they happened. So uh, I was talking to my friend Dan about it, and Dan, uh, this was like, I don't remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday. I'm so nervous about the game. Ooh. And uh, Dan's a fan of the Seahawks. He could care less about the Chiefs. So he could have said, oh, Scott, come on. We love upsets. It would be historic. Wouldn't it be great if the Jaguars win? We're tired of the Chiefs anyway. They've been there four years in a row. It's time for somebody. He could have said that, but he did not. Instead, he said, records are made to be broken. And when my friend Dan said that to me, for about nine seconds, I felt peace wash over me. <laughs> and then I started worrying again. What if Patrick Mahomes gets injured? He sprains his ankle or something. Lord, heal Patrick Mahomes' ankle, please. <laughs> Everybody wants that. Anyway, um, what does this have to do with carrying our cross and denying ourselves? Words matter. Our words matter. And this week, as you're following after Jesus, pay attention to your words. Are you using your words to pick people up? to encourage people or to put people down? Are you using your words to shine a light or is your choice of words and language, is it adding to the darkness in this world? Another example, Jared Wells is on staff here at Hope, has been for over a decade. His wife, uh, Brittany, teaches in our preschool. And several years ago now, they felt a call by God to become uh, foster parents. So they did all the classes and all the certifications and all the training, everything you need to do. 
I don't know how many kids they have been foster parents to over the years, but I do know this week two of those foster children became adopted children. And we are praising God for that. Yeah, praise God for that. Just a tremendously awesome story. And I know enough about adoption. I know enough about the foster system to know this has been a pain-filled journey. They have walked the path of suffering as they have uh, chosen this path, as they have followed after uh, God's call. And, and I would encourage you to be praying for this growing Wells family. Uh, be praying for the other families in our congregation, in our community, who are impacted by the foster care system, who've maybe adopted. It's a hard road. It's a hard road. And it's a road filled with all kinds of joy. And it's a road that fills you with a life that you would not otherwise experience. So, I am not saying you need to become foster or adoptive parents. I am asking you, what is God's call on your life? What are the specific set of skills that God has given you? The, the ways God has gifted you, the passions that God has given you. What is God's call on your life? And what would it look like for you this week to even say yes to taking one step in the direction uh, of going after God's call? on your life. Uh, one final example. On Wednesday night, I was watching the Big Ten Network's documentary on Chris Street, a basketball player at the University of Iowa in the early 90s. He was born the same year I was born, uh, graduated from high school the same year I graduated from high school, and 30 years ago this week, January 19, 1993, he was killed in a car accident. So I want you to watch just a little bit of this documentary. Take a look. You don't have a son for 20 years, and in a year, you get over it. As you go through this, finally it rings a bell and says, hey, you're not the only one here that's hurting. It was tough. I mean, I definitely know that after the accident, I tried not to cry in front of mom and dad because I felt like if I cried, they cried, and so then it made it harder. Um, so I'd go in my room, and I would have those moments. Christopher was very in tune to his Christianity. In his Bible, he had this underline. Jesus answered them, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to receive great glory. I am telling you the truth. A grain of wheat remains no more than a simple grain unless it is dropped into the ground and dies. If it does die, then it produces many grains. We interpreted that as through Christopher's death, that maybe many more would be saved. I lost track this week of how many people were texting me or sending me messages or stopping me at the grocery store or gas station to ask, hey, Scott, did you see the Chris Street documentary? And every single one of them told me uh, exactly where they were and what was going on when they heard the news of his death. And every single one of them told me, I just sobbed as I watched it, which of course makes sense, it's tragic. But I think part of the reason people cried when they watched it is because the, 
the documentary forces you to examine your priorities. And it really makes it pretty clear that far too often our priorities get out of whack. And we are, we're missing what matters most. I had forgotten as I watched the documentary, I remembered uh, the year after Chris Street's death, Fred Hoiberg, the mayor, star player at that time at Iowa State, changed his jersey number from 32 to 40 to honor Chris Street. And every year for like a decade, a uh, player on the Cyclone team who played high school ball in the state of Iowa got the honor of wearing number 40. There was a, an impact of Chris Street's life and death that had ripple effects from eastern Iowa to central Iowa. You can read articles that people wrote about him uh, in the, the week after his death. The Washington Post was writing about it. The Los Angeles Times was writing about it. I think part of the reason his death had such an impact can be attributed to his faith in Jesus Christ. This new math of Jesus. It's summed up pretty perfectly in that passage from John chapter 12 that his mom Patty just read. Death can result in a harvest of new lives. Death can result in a harvest of new lives. That doesn't make any sense unless you're standing at the foot of the cross. And what this new Jesus math starts to show us, when we go the Jesus way, when we start to, to live our lives differently because of Jesus, then when bad things happen in our life, and there's all kinds of bad things that happen in our life, the new Jesus math makes it possible for us to believe God can take this horrible, awful, terrible thing and God can do something good with it. The new Jesus math can help us believe God's able to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it to good. And I'm convinced that's why most of you are here today. Because at some point in your life, when it was dark, when you felt broken, when you were racked with sin and guilt and shame over that sin, at some point when all hope was lost, love lifted you. Specifically, the love of God lifted you. And when you have that experience in the middle of something that is not good, God reaches in and does something good. God restores your hope. God gives you new life. In the middle of that, God forgives you. That's when it all starts to add up. This new Jesus math, that there is a God, that God loves you, that God is for you, forgiveness is for you, grace is for you. And as you experience this, it starts to help you see it's not just for me. It's for everybody. It's for the whole world, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, black, brown, white, refugee, native. God's love is for everyone. And the more that you live your life out of this love, out of this grace, the more the power of the love that took Jesus to the cross is embedded inside you, the more dissatisfying the way the world gets all the time. And you find yourself saying, I'm not looking for something new, some, some new path. What I'm actually looking for is something old, something ancient, something eternal. It's actually what happens at the end of Hidden Figures is they're trying to figure out how, what's the new math that's going to get us up into outer space and back. Turns out it's something ancient. Take a look. You know what your job is, Paul? Find the genius among those geniuses.
pull us all up. We all get to the peak together or we don't get there at all. Yes. Well, good night, sir. is when the capsule moves from an elliptical orbit to a parabolic orbit. There's no mathematical formula for that. Because we can calculate launch and landing, but without this conversion, the capsule stays in orbit. We can't bring it back home. Maybe we've been thinking about this all wrong. How's that? Maybe it's not new math at all. It could be old math. Something that looks at the problem numerically and not theoretically. Math is always dependable. For you, it is. Euler's method. Euler's method? Yes. That's ancient. But it works. 2,000 years is a long time, and 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. Love one another the way I have loved you. It's old. It's ancient. It's eternal. But it works. Let's stand together and let's sing about the power of God's love displayed on the cross. <laughs> 